Thank you all for your singing, and Mark for filling in on announcements at the last moment. Let's take our Bibles this morning, turn over to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. It's not that long since we were in the book of 1 John. Pastor preached through 1 John a little more than a year ago, back when we were first starting all of this uh, craziness having to do with COVID and all of that that was going on, and we were entirely remote, and so uh, we were coming in he was preaching from here, but no one else was actually here while he preached most of First John. We were all doing live stream. And yet, even though we've been here recently, I want to come this morning to First John chapter 4 and verse 19, and we're going to dig in and spend our time this morning in just one verse. In fact, a very short verse If you are inclined to do so, you count and you discover 1 John 4.19 is just eight words. Just eight words, and yet I contend, and we're going to unpack this morning, that the full richness and glory of the gospel is packed into these eight little words. 1 John 4.19 reads, And we love him because he first loved us. At Calvary Baptist Church in Preble, New York, we are, in the classical sense, evangelicals. That is a word that in our our common discourse in our nation today has taken on a, a lot of other meaning. It talks as much about politics most of the time, the evangelical right, as it does about any doctrinal sense. But in the classical sense, Evangelicals from the Greek, evangelion, literally means those people who care about the gospel. They're the gospel people, the people for whom the gospel is the central part of their Christianity. The people who believe that our relationship with God and our daily life as believers is dominated by the reality of the gospel. You know, sometimes we fall into this habit, this fault of forgetting the gospel, of feeling as though it's something that we dig into and and we have a lot to do with when we first get saved, and then that's kind of behind us, and we let the gospel fall by the wayside, accepting as much as we share it with others so that they can get saved. And that is not a bad use of the gospel. But I think we miss that the gospel does not become something in our rearview mirror once we are saved. In fact, the gospel is the single great reality in the life of every man, woman, and child, believer and non-believer in all of history. Regardless of how you come to the gospel, regardless of what your response to the gospel is, Regardless of how much of it you understand, it is the gospel that ultimately defines how we live this life and where we will spend eternity. Every life, no matter how short or how long, how rich or how poor, how powerful or how obscure is defined by how we relate to the gospel day in and day out. We are either the people of the biblical gospel, as preached by Christ, as attested by the apostles, and ultimately as declared throughout all the world by the church, 
Or we are the people who reject the gospel, who follow Adam in his rebellion against God, who seek to reshape reality as it suits us rather than as it actually exists, and who ultimately suffer the consequences in this life and in eternity for that rejection. All of that hangs upon the gospel. Paul looked at the gospel in his second epistle to the Corinthians, and he points to our lives as representatives of the gospels, and he says that those who are being saved find us to be a savor of life unto life, and those who reject the gospel find us to be a savor of death unto death. Paul says, as you go throughout your life, the reality of the gospel is present in you, and inasmuch as you are salt and life in this world around you, those who God is working in their heart and drawing them to salvation look at you and find in your life that reflection of the gospel, and it has a savor of life about it. And those who reject the gospel look at you And find a savor of death and condemnation about it. You know, there is a reason the world looks at the church today and says that the church is hateful. There is a reason the world looks at the church today and says, oh, all those Christians are judgmental. There is a reason the world looks at the church and says, you guys are are too narrow. And it's not necessarily because what the church has said or done It's because in as much as the church reflects the gospel, the message of the gospel pricks the heart of the world. And the work of the Holy Spirit, John tells us in his gospel, is that he convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so they know that the gospel is true, whether they admit it or not. And that stings and savors of the judgment that they know is coming. Inasmuch then as we are being salt and light, as the world comes into contact with us in our day-to-day lives, they almost certainly will not know the gospel by name, but they will recognize it in us. It is the gospel in us that people react to. It is not our clever words. It's not some particular way that we speak. It's not necessarily some particular habit that we have. But it is rather, as Paul phrases it, the savor of our lives that is either life unto life or death unto death. Christ speaks of this reality in John chapter 3. He's speaking with Nicodemus in just two verses after John 3.16, that famous verse, John 3 verse 18. He says that all who believe on the Son are not condemned, but all who do not believe stand already condemned. Because they have not accepted the gospel. Christ boils the whole thing down and Nicodemus is struggling with this. How, how can I have right relationship with God? I'm, I'm the chief teacher, the chief leader of all of Israel. I've done all the right things. I've kept all the right ceremonial laws. I, I've done everything. What else must I do? Remember Christ's response? You must be born again. All the things you've done are meaningless. You must be born again and come to the Messiah. 
accept his gift of grace and mercy that you can do nothing for. Nicodemus is flabbergasted by that. How can a man be born again? What, what does that even mean? The message is clear. It is The gospel is the defining fact in the life, not just of the believer, but also of those who have never accepted Christ as their Savior. The centrality of the gospel means that in order to properly understand ourselves, to properly understand God and our relationship with God, either as redeemed children or as his rebellious enemies, we must rightly understand the gospel. Which brings us to John chapter 4 and verse 19. This is without a doubt one of the most compact and powerful declarations of the gospel contained in the entire scripture. In these eight words are packed all the essential doctrines of grace that make up the gospel and which are at the core of our understanding of what the gospel is. We love him because he first loved us. First notice that it was not we who initiated our relationship with God. We love him because he first loved us. In fact, we love him, we recognize the logical necessity here that we would not have loved him had he not first chosen to set his love upon us. All of us stood in rebellion against God, his enemies by our choice, by our nature. In fact, all of humanity from the time of Adam, our first father, until now, has stood in Adam's sin, guilty by nature of sin, and guilty by inclination, by disposition, by desire, by choice. We follow along in Adam's rebellion in our own personal lives. Treason against our right rightful and eternal king. Our every act of self-worship and self-indulgence, a theft of glory from him who alone deserves all glory. Our every act of unkindness, a marring of the image of God which he placed in mankind as the pinnacle of his creation. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 reminds us that Christ came and offered us the gospel when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Unable to give ourselves life. Unable to draw ourselves to God. Unable to come on our own. He reached out to us. He sought us. He stirred our hearts. He made us understand the gospel as the word was preached such that it moved our hearts and produced life where there was no life. Christ presents the gospel in Nicodemus and tells him that nothing short of a new birth can bring Nicodemus from his present state of death into a new one of life. Paul declares in the words of the psalmist that there is none righteous, no, not one, There are none that understand, and there are none that seek after God. Sometimes you hear someone, generally a TV evangelist, claim that, well, there, there are many ways to God, and there are many religions, and a lot of these religions are all just coming to the same God by a different name. Eh, that's right. Wrong. 
Jesus Christ presents himself and he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There is no other way. And there are none who are seeking after God. They're seeking after their own self-aggrandizement, their own self-comfort. They're making their own gods and worshiping their own gods that satisfy their lusts. But they're not seeking after the true God. They're not seeking after the God of the Bible. We don't do that. In fact, we run the other direction. Left to our own devices, we could not come to God and initiate a loving relationship with him. And even if we could have, we would not have done so. We reject him and make ourselves his enemy. Our every inclination is away from God until he first chooses to place his love upon us in a unique way through the work of the Holy Spirit and stir our hearts and begin to draw us to himself. This informs our relationship with God. We love him because he first loved us. We wouldn't have come on our own. We never would have placed love on him on our own. Instead, he loves us, and our love becomes a reflection of that. We are reminded by this of what a great debt of love and loyalty we owe in return. We were the unlovable, the rebellious, the vile, the disloyal, the treacherous. And in that state, he reached out and loved us anyway. Not because there was anything that called out his love, but because he is loving regardless of what we are. Because he exemplifies a love to us that does not need to be returned. You know, some of the most tragic words in all of Scripture occur in John's Gospel, the first chapter. He came to his own, and his own received him not. Now, in the context, in the most direct form, he's talking about his own people, Israel. But there is a sense in which that's true of everything. He came to his own what? His own everything. Creation. He came to everything that he had created that was created by him for his own glory that it might praise and worship him. And his own everything rejected him hated and despised him, shied away from him because he was the light that shines into the world of darkness and men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. He exemplifies to us a love that does not need to be returned. What a tragedy it was not returned, but what a great joy and grace That Christ didn't come and offer the gospel. He didn't come and offer the kingdom to the nation of Israel. He didn't come and offer his love and when it was rejected say, okay, well, I guess you guys don't want it. He sacrificed himself anyway. He is loving regardless of what we are. He does not demand any actions or recognition or return in order for his love to exist It is a love as a choice. It is a love that seeks the best and the highest good for the object of its love without any reference 
to what that object deserves. If we are so loved, do we not feel compelled to love in return? But such love causes us, it causes us to want to love in return. It calls to us by its very example. It it produces in us a joy and a gratitude that nothing could force and yet is inevitable once that love is recognized and known. That love of Christ that is poured out in us produces in us a love in return. And not just a love for him, but also a love for those around us. It is a love that informs our relationship with others around us. As Christ reminds his disciples, even the world loves those who are kind to them. To those who are their friends. Even the world shows love towards those who are lovable and loving. What's Christ's call to his disciples? I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to them who despitefully use you. Look at the world around you, and rather than seeing a world that hates me and because of me hates you, see an opportunity to pour out the same kind of love that I poured out on you. A love that is undeserved, and yet a love that points to Christ, that we can but mirror in the, the palest of ways. Not only is it a love that we would never have come to on our own, but is also, secondly, it is a love that we have for him because he first loved us. We have done nothing to draw that love to ourselves. We did not initiate the relationship, nor would we have. We did not choose God, but he chose us. This reality is hard for us to swallow. It's difficult for us, and all the more so because as we live out the experience of the Christian life, many of us, not necessarily all, but many of us can remember a point in time in history where we recognized and understood the gospel, and we remember making a choice to turn to Christ. And so sometimes we think of that and we, look, I I chose to come to the gospel. Scripture is clear. We don't make that choice until God has already been doing a work in our hearts and given life and understanding where there was no life. That is not a choice that we come to in a vacuum. We don't wake up someday and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick God today. Remember what Paul says, there are none righteous, there are none that understand, there are none that seek. We're not waking up one day and choosing to come to him. Instead, it's he who started looking for us. It's he who sought us and brought us to himself through a work in our hearts by his word and by the power of the spirit and he led us to himself by degrees and over time in such a way that a right understanding of the gospel was formed in us and once we understood 
and began to recognize what was happening, all of a sudden, the light goes off and we realize what's being offered. And we come to the gospel in such a way that we feel as though we've discovered it. But in reality, he's been drawing us every step of the way. This order is vital to our understanding of the gospel. For if we had picked God ourselves, then why did not everyone else pick God for themselves? If I picked God, but somebody else didn't, then why not? Were were we less wicked than everyone else? Boy, we'd love to believe that about ourselves. Were, were we, had we less a burden of sin to hold us back? We'd love to believe that one too. Were we more intelligent to be able to understand the gospel where others had missed it? Had we more faith to be able to accept the gospel where others could not bring themselves to do so? You, you see, no matter where you place the virtue, somehow along the way, if we picked him and he didn't pick us, then there's something for me to brag about. There's something that I did that nobody else did. There's something that I was able to accomplish that so many elders have missed. If we picked God, then somehow or another we have something to be proud of. But in the gospel, there is no glory for us. All the glory and all the praise and all the honor and all the goodness in the gospel is Christ's and not ours. We affirm with scripture that we bring nothing to our salvation and we have no act in it that is to our glory. All the sin was ours and all the glory and goodness were God's. Or as Jonathan Edwards so eloquently put it, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I have nothing to bring. And so it must be he who first sets his love upon me. It can't possibly have been the other way around. Tied up in this is also thirdly that we love him because he first loved us. But that love, that relationship that's described there is not universal Remember John's words from chapter 2 of this letter? He, that is Christ, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ's sacrifice satisfies before the Father all sin debt, and yet all do not come to salvation. We love him because he first loved us. Not all love him because he first loved all. This is no boast. It's nothing for us to glory in. It's not that we just noticed him and set our love upon him. We we just talked about that. He did the choosing. He did the loving. And we simply respond. Left to ourselves, we would have gone on with all the world in rebellion. But while the gospel is universal in its offer, and universal in its capacity... Scripture is utterly clear that it is not universal in its effect. All are invited to come, and Christ's work is sufficient for all, but not all enter into life. 
If we had to choose him, we would have something in this to boast of, but we did not choose him. If we had done anything good and righteous and holy, we might have something to cling to as elevating ourselves above others. But we have nothing to bring but our need. And God's limited selection speaks not of any virtue in us, but only to his ultimate and sovereign purpose of glorifying himself. I know of no better description of this than Romans chapter 9. Paul is discussing this very issue, and he asks this question. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared beforehand for destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. Paul says you, you wonder why some come and some don't. Why Christ calls some and not others. Why the gospel has an effect in the hearts of some and others seem stonily impervious to it. He says, we, it's not ours to understand why God does what he does, but we recognize that God, for the purpose of glorifying himself, chooses to pour out his judgment and show his glory on some and chooses to pour out his grace and love and show his glory on others. Praise God, hallelujah. He is good and he is glorious and he deserves our worship. He chooses, we don't choose. He calls and we would never respond but that he works in the hearts of some. And you see, the ultimate purpose of God is not in either saving or condemning mankind but in glorifying himself Sometimes we make the mistake, because the gospel is so vital to us, of thinking that we are the central players of the gospel. Have to pop that bubble. As much as the gospel means to us, for us the gospel is central, but we are not central to the gospel. The central reality of the gospel is that God is glorifying himself. He does not go through all the work of the gospel and all the things that are wrought out in history to set the gospel up so that Christ can come and be the sacrifice for his people so that he can eventually come back and call his people to himself and reign on his throne. He does not go through all of that so that some of us can be saved. He does all of that so that he can be glorified in saving some of us and glorified in judging those who are not saved. Ultimately, it is his glory, it is his praise, it is his worthiness that is on display in the gospel. We just get caught up in it. We get this ride along with it and get to reap the benefits of something that is not ultimately about us. Fourthly, we love him Because he first loved us. God's love does not simply bring about a desire to love in return, but it produces an inevitable result. 
Not because his love is dependent upon that result, but because it is of such a quality that it compels our hearts in a way that we are drawn inevitably into it. Love so pure, so divine, so undeserved, and yet so fully given produces a result in the recipient of that love. Not simply as a matter of the quality of that love, though that alone is stunning, but because of the action which that love takes in its course. It is such a love as gave its only begotten Son to, be rede- to redeem mankind. It is such a love as gives the new birth and places life in the bosom of those stillborn in sin. It is such a love as makes a new heart in its recipients and writes on that heart the law of love such that we who were once slaves to sin are now forever children of the King and heirs with the Son. The love of God acts, and in acting, it creates life in the redeemed and lights in them a spark of life and love that finds its source and strength in Christ. When he loves, his love produces a result in us. We love him because he first loved us. Let, let me draw that out and, and let's think about that for a moment. Do you re- realize that all who he loves in the way that he's talking about here, all who he sets his special love upon, love him in return? There is not one whom he has called and worked in the heart of and set his love upon in this way who does not then love him back. Every single one whom he makes his own, he draws to himself, and in their heart is produced love also. Keep your finger here. Flip back to Romans for just a moment. Romans chapter 8. We had Romans chapter 8. We're going to pick up in verse 28. I'm, I'm really interested in verses 29 and 30, but to set some context here, Romans 8, 28, that verse that we all know and love to cling to, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called, or are the called according to his purpose. And we, we love that. God is working out good. And particularly as we look at the chaos that is life on this earth, We cling to that. Lord, I I have no idea what's going on today. This day is going crazy. This year is going crazy. This whole world is going crazy. But you say you're working it out for good. That's a comfort to us. But what is that good that he's working it out to? Verse 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Paul says when God knows, he foreknows, he selects ahead of time, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies, 
those who are his beloved, those whom he sets his love upon. And every single one of them, he has this process that he goes through because of his love. (coughs) Excuse me, pardon me. Because of his love, he follows through on this. He does not fail to accomplish his purpose. And what is the end of that purpose? Verse 29, whom he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. The ultimate goal of our salvation, the ultimate goal of God setting his love upon us is that he might ultimately work out the image of his Son in us so that we can glorify and honor and praise him as he deserves. That is the good that he is accomplishing in our lives. Sometimes we go through the events of life and and we stand there and we're, we're finding comfort that he's working out good, but we're saying, God, this is not pleasant. I don't see where this is getting good. And God says, no, no, you have the wrong definition of good. My definition of good is that you look like Christ at the end of it. Remember everything that Christ went through? Remember all that he suffered in order to display his love? I'm working out my good that will make you into his image so that you can worship and glorify him as he deserves. That's not guaranteed to be a pleasant process. In fact, all of the metaphors he picks for that kind of give some life to that. He calls a sheep lots of times. And some, we, we have this mental picture of sheep, you know, the, the, the pristine, snowy white lamb. Sheep are not like that. Like, I'm... I'm We did not have a large sheep farm, let me qualify this, but my parents had a a couple of sheep growing up. Sheep are never pristine and white. They're like toddlers. You clean them, take them out, 10 seconds later, there's dirt. I don't know where it came from. They were in a pristine room. They manufactured dirt out of nothing and got it on themselves. Sheep are filthy. Sheep are one of the only animals that are so bad at cleaning themselves that if they don't get some help, they will eventually become so dirty that it will clog their pores and it will actually kill them. They will be poisoned to death by the filth on their skin because they aren't good enough at cleaning themselves to do anything about it on their own. When they're that wet, they can't go swimming to do anything about it either because they have all the wool and all the dirt and the water gets in it. And if they try and go swimming, they drown. They're not always bright enough to know that that's going to be the end result either, by the way. Sheep have all kinds of problems. They're not terribly bright. They're not clean. They need all kinds of care from a shepherd or they don't make it. That's it. They're they're dumb. That's the picture. Christ looks and he says, look, that's what you are and I'm cleaning you up and transforming you into the image of my son. He says, you're you're the clay and I'm the potter. You ever see a potter make something out of clay? They knead it all up and they mash it and they mix it. It's rather a brutal process on the clay. 
And then they, they slam it on the wheel and they smack it down there and get it to set and they start shaping it. And if it doesn't come out perfect, you know what they do? They smash it all in and mix it up again and start, and they just keep going. And every time they find a defect, they take a knife and they cut the defect out of the clay, throw that away. You find a pebble in the clay, you cut that out and smash it all in and start over again. These are not illustrations selected to tell us that we're going to have a nice, comfortable, easy, smooth ride from here to glory. It is a process that he works out in us such that he will produce the image of Christ in us through his love. That love does accomplish its work. He never fails at that which he sets out to do. Finally, we love him because he first loved us. That is to say that our love is a reflection of his love. So long then as his love endures, so till too will ours. Many grow concerned over the security of a believer's salvation, particularly when they or someone they observe struggles with sin in their lives. But our salvation was not purchased with our good works, nor will it be maintained by continuing to walk in good works. Just as we had nothing to do with purchasing our salvation, so we also have nothing to do with preserving our salvation. The key element of the gospel is the work of Christ. And the impeccable quality of that work guarantees that our new life in Christ will remain and endure. You see, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Absolutely, positively, no questions asked. And in fact, I'm going to go out on a limb Don't take this personally, but I'm going to make an assumption. Based on what Scripture says, all of you would too. If we could lose our salvation, we would. Because we all, whether we admit it to ourselves or not, live with Paul in Romans chapter 6, day after day after day. That which I would do, I do not. And that which I would not do, I do. It is a constant and an ongoing struggle. Because God's work of salvation, while it frees us from the bondage of sin, does not free us from these corrupted, sin-cursed bodies and the fleshly nature that we have within us. We carry these for the rest of this life until we step into his presence and are transformed in a moment into the fullness of his image. And so we struggle Day in and day out with sin. Constantly, never-endingly. And just when we think we've had a victory over it, we stumble again. If it were up to us, we wouldn't be able to maintain it. Good news, it's not up to us. Good news, we didn't earn it, and we're not responsible for maintaining it. It is a work of Christ. Our salvation is entirely because of what Christ did on the cross. And when he said, it is finished, he meant it. 
all the work that was necessary for my salvation and for your salvation and for the salvation of anyone who's willing to come to him was done. There was no more work to be accomplished, nothing left to do. We will not live sinlessly for the rest of our earthly lives. But inasmuch as the salvation that we received is genuine, it is secure. Either we received a genuine work of Christ in saving us that will endure to the day of our being called to his side, or it was a false profession that was never real and was always a charade of our own works and fantasies and never connected with Christ at all. There is no middle ground. Men sometimes say, but, but if I have chosen Christ, can't I later reject him? But you didn't choose Christ. You love him because he first loved you. He set his love upon you. You're right. You never would have chosen him. If it was left up to you, you never would have come. But he chose you. Men will say, but what if I turn my back on the gospel and go back to my sin? You will sin as a believer. It is inevitable, though sad. You're no longer enslaved to sin, and yet God has not freed you from this flesh and its sinful nature so that while this life endures, we battle with sin. So either your salvation was a work of Christ at the start and his work will endure, and you will return to him from that sin, or it was never a work of Christ and it was never true salvation to start with. Men will say, but what if I have committed the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is to reject the gospel. In its context, Christ talks with his disciples and he's discussing the nation of Israel and they ask him about this and he says, well, they've committed the unpardonable sin. What's he talking about? Well, in the verses before that, Israel looked at him and saw the Messiah and they said, no, we don't want him. Well, if you reject the gospel, what other opportunity for pardon of sin is there? And so again, I say, either you have a genuine salvation, in which case you have not committed the unpardonable sin. He is faithful no matter how faithless we are. Or we have only a pretend salvation that never had anything to do with Christ. And we've not lost something that we never gained. Once Christ places his saving love upon us, we are his and our love in return for him and for all whom he loves is inevitable. We are often faithless, but he is faithful. We often fail in our work, but he who began a good work in us will faithfully complete it until the day he calls us to himself. 1 John 419, we love him because he first loved us. The depth and the riches of the gospel in those eight little words. They ought to have an impact on us. For the redeemed, 
let us live as the beloved of the Father. And live that our lives might be the savor of life unto life to those who are being saved and the savor of death unto death to those who are rejecting the gospel. Let us live that our love for Christ and for our brethren might be known to the world around us. Let us live as though we are redeemed by him who loved us first, who chose us when we were unlovable, and who having set his love upon us will not repent himself. For those who have not yet known the love of Christ, he is calling. He is offering. He is willing to love you. In Matthew's gospel, Christ says, Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened. If your heart is longing after a right and a whole relationship with God, after his love in your life, that is a desire that he placed there and is a work that he will accomplish. You know, the the incredible thing about the gospel, we are called to proclaim it to all. And sometimes somebody says, "Well, well, what if somebody wants to come to God, but they're not one of God's chosen? Remember what Paul says? There are none righteous, There are none that understand. There are none that seek. No one has ever sought after God that God hadn't already placed his love on them and began drawing them to himself. That's why Christ can confidently say, if you're seeking, you will find. Because that's a work the Father's doing in your heart. If you come and you knock at the door looking for life, the door will be opened because that's a work that Christ is doing in your life, you'll never be turned away. Ask, and it shall be given. There's never been anyone who's come looking for life and been turned away. There are only those who never wanted life in the first place. Seek him in his word. Seek him through the counsel of those who know him already. He's not hiding from you, but he is calling to you that he might pour out his love in your life also. Let's close with a word of prayer this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you loved us. We struggle to know what real and genuine love looks like. The world has a a myriad of ideas of what love ought to look like. All of them wrong. We struggle to exemplify love in our families and in our relationships. We struggle with our sin nature. And yet, Father, we look at you and we look at the work that you have done in the gospel and we see that you loved us. And because of that, we love you in return. We honor and we praise you this morning. In the precious name of Christ we come. Amen. Micah snuck up behind me. It's going to close us in our final song.